Welcome to Utilizing AI, the podcast about enterprise applications for machine learning, deep learning, and other artificial intelligence topics. Each episode brings together experts in enterprise infrastructure to discuss applications of AI in today's data center and beyond. Today, we're actually stepping outside the data center to learn more about neuromorphic processing and AI at the edge. Let's meet our guest. Lou DiNardo is the CEO of BrainChip, which presented at our Gestalt IT AI Field Day last year. We were so impressed that we wanted to bring Lou on to talk more about AI at the edge. Well, th thank you for having me. And I, I, I must say, at the, at the beginning here, the AI Field Day was a tremendous success. It was a very well-run uh, event, uh, uh, but BrainChip, plays a very special role in the AI environment in that we are exclusively targeted at edge applications for good reasons that we can talk about. And I am Andy Thurai, your co-host, founder and principal at thefieldcto.com, where we provide consulting analysis and unbiased emerging tech advisory services. You can follow me on Twitter at Andy Thurai or at thefieldcto.com. That's at thefieldcto.com. Thanks. And as you know, I'm Stephen Foskett, organizer of Tech Field Day and publisher of Gestalt IT. You can find me on Twitter at sfoskett. So Lou, one of the unique aspects of AI is centralized training, centralized processing, centralized everything. And for the most part, that's been because AI has such a heavy footprint. It requires a lot of computing power and a lot of power power and cooling and everything. And all of that really, really adds up. And it fundamentally changes the design and the nature of AI applications. Because what you end up with is you end up with centralized AI in the data data center instead of AI in the edge everywhere, simply because you can't do it. What you were talking about with BrainChip at AI Field Day is that you can do it, that you can move AI processing, not just to edge devices like computers and stuff, but to basically everything. Do I have that right? That is exactly correct. Um, and the, you know, the, the basics of it is our, our fundamental neuromorphic technology. Uh, so we, we process data or information uh, just like the human brain. So we, we look at only events, non-zero, what we call non-zero activations. If something isn't different, something isn't new, we don't process it. Uh, in today's architectures, which you're correct, uh, pr primarily sit in the cloud or sit in a data center, every single piece of information gets processed. You can't do that at the edge where ultra low power, we're talking microwatts of power, not even milliwatts, thousands of a watt. We're talking, you know, microwatts or, or you know, mill millionths of a watt. Uh, and with that uh, ability, you can, you can move the analytics to the edge right up against the transducer so that you don't have to process all the data. You're gonna to have to suck up the bandwidth uh, to communicate all, the, the, all of that data across a LAN or a Wi-Fi or even a, a, even a 5G network. You don't need all that data. So we do the processing at the, at the edge, at the device. And it is really one of, one of a kind uh, solution right now. 
And that, I think, is the thing that really caught my attention when I got the first briefing from BrainChip, because the idea that you can basically, that you guys have developed this core that is so low power. I mean, for, for listeners, we're talking about, you know, like the difference between like an Arduino and a Raspberry Pi versus a regular computer, not the differences between like I said, like a laptop and a data center. I mean, the, the idea would be that that these things could literally be everywhere. And not just that they would be doing the, um, you know, like pattern matching and stuff, but they could actually be learning at the edge. Is that right, Lou? That's uh, probably one of the most fundamental things that we bring to the table, uh, aside from low power and, and, a, and a complete solution. It's This is not a deep learning accelerator that needs a CPU as a host. Uh, and external memory. Everything is included in what we call Akita. Akita is the Greek word for spike. Um, so you know we we kind of stick stick to our knitting on what neuromorphic technology really means. But what we can do is learn at the edge. There is really no true learning going on. Uh, it's training. And every time a new object or a new event occurs, you'd have to go back to the cloud or you'd have to go back to a data center and retrain the entire network. Uh, with Akita, up against any transducer, it could be vibration, temperature, flow, pressure, uh, something new, vision, uh, audio, something new happens and Akita learns on the fly in the field. You don't have to go back and retrain the network. So if you start a vision application and you're looking for 10 things, you want to know if it's a dog, a cat, a kid, a, you know, a, a person in general, but now all of a sudden you have something else that you'd be interested in, or we recognize that pattern uh, that says there's something you should be interested in. We learn in the field. The, the, the device does not have to be retrained. And that is a very, very powerful solution for any autonomous application and the ability to send back metadata rather than all of the data. Those are two very, very powerful solutions for edge applications. Right, so <clears throat> let me jump in and, and double click a couple of items what he just said, right? Um, so obviously, you know, for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, uh, the big data center chip uh, players like Intel and AMD popularized the whole concept of, you know, building everything at a center location and you have to move everything there. And then, of course, the ARM chips and even the NVIDIA chips kind of, you know, popularized the notion of you could build somewhat of a smaller chip. It doesn't have to be as big or powerful as uh, data center chips, and you can move that to the edge to do those things, right? And then he also touched on my my one of my pet peeves that almost if you look at the data enterprises, as you call them, not, not necessarily a regular enterprise, but a company has produced a ton of data, they can process the data at edge. So they got to move everything to the cloud, not just for model creation, but even to do analysis and stuff like that. Um, so there are two issues there. One is, you know, you move, collect all the data somewhere to do a model creation. That's issue number one that has to be centralized. And the issue number two, as you are saying, the model inference itself at times could be a problem at the edge. So either they do a half there and a half of the cloud, and then the reinforcement learning and learning from that to update your models becomes another issue because you have to do it at the edge at first time and then move it to the centralized location to retrain the models and stuff. 
I know it's a long question that I asked you, but but the combination is a problem. So how you are positioning yourself to solve all of the above? Well, I, there's there's been a it's a, a huge uh, transition. Maybe call it a disruption. Uh, everything that you just described is based on what you know us old guys know as the von Neumann model. Mm. I mean, the computing architecture that's been around for the last fifty plus years is instruction, fetch data, process. Instruction, fetch data, process. Instruction. Now we've gotten away with that for 50 years because we just jack up clock speeds. But when you jack up clock speeds, you, 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 you require more power. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the transition to neuromorphic where we're not, there is no program involved. We, we look at events. Uh, an event is a change in data and we look for repeating patterns. If you take something, something like LIDAR, which is very, very uh, pervasive in the autonomous uh, vehicle market or ADAS, uh, the sparsity of that data could be as much as 90%. So we, won't, we only have to process 10% of the data. We're not doing matrix multiplication, uh, lines of code upon lines of code upon lines of code. We only see and we only process what, again, I call non-zero activations. That is a huge, huge transition and, and, and will be very disruptive uh, in enabling AI at the edge. So let me ask you a follow-up question on that. That, that. Now that you brought up that LIDAR subject, uh, people don't realize, particularly when it comes to autonomous cars, right? Or, or autonomous trucks or anything that's moving, uh, because when you kind of build eyes to those moving objects, you know, I could throw drones in that category as well. When it's going in, you're kind of educating them, you know, to an extent saying that, you know, if this happens, if you have already seen that this is how you have to act, which is fine. But when the unknown unknown happens is where the actual problem comes in, right? So it, it figures out what to do on its own, particularly in case of drones, because the connectivity is going to be very low. So that's where on-chip learning, on-chip inference, and updating the models and figuring out what to do on the fly, right? I mean, the drones can eventually move into autonomous flying planes and whatnot, right? So, so that's where I think you know the market where it's going, and then where your offering could be more helpful. That's my view. What what do you think about that situation? You know, it's it's um, it's a very wide spectrum of use cases, uh, and I've, I've I've kind of coined or followed a phrase that I learned uh, very very early on in my career. It's not what to do, it's which to do. Uh, mm. Everybody's chasing AI, but in our case, we're being very selective. We're playing at the edge, but the edge itself is a very wide spectrum. So we're engaged with NASA. I mean, think about autonomy in spaceflight, the, the, the ability to reduce power and have you know, smart analytics on the fly, so to speak, on the fly in space, aircraft. Uh, you, know, you could go to the other end of the, the spectrum and uh, we're doing vibration analysis on bearings in railroads, uh, you know, railroad cars, preventive maintenance. Uh, we have an application that we're working on, which is a volatile organic compound detector uh, so that you can, you, know, you can breathe into a device just like a breathalyzer and possibly get to a point 
where you can diagnose infectious disease, uh, precancers or early cancers. Um, and this is, this is why we have really, we have a really good feel about the company in, with respect to providing artificial intelligence for beneficial purposes. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's um, a very wide spectrum, but we're being very careful. We have an early access program as, uh, as you know, many companies do, uh, but we're being very selective about those applications. You, you know, you, you, made a good, you made a good point, Andy, that we, you know, we went from an AD86, an Intel 8086, way back when, you know, one of the first, first and most popular processors. Uh, and of course, that's, that's matured over time. But then you, had, then you had companies like Microchip come in, uh, ST Micro, uh, Renosis, microcontrollers, but they all still need to be programmed. And that's the big step forward with neuromorphic processing or neuromorphic computing is that processing doesn't exist in lines of code. And, and I think that that's the key differentiator here. I think that some people listening to this may say, well, we have autonomous vehicles. We, have, we you know, we can do, um, you know, uh, image detection and your know, object detection in a doorbell or a Raspberry Pi or whatever. Uh, you know, what is he talking about that's so special here? And I think that that's the important thing. The thing that's special, I think, as Andy was trying to get at here as well, is that we're not just applying an existing model or an existing library to inputs and you know, kind of hoping for the best, that the chip is actually um, building these things on the fly. And as you said, you know, I mean, we, we saw this demonstrated with AI Field Day that um, you know, you, a single image of a tiger allowed it to identify tigers. Another image of an elephant allowed it to differentiate between tigers and elephants. You know, we saw it doing this with, uh, as you mentioned, with the, you know, uh, processing uh, smells, basically. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and the difference is that that's happening entirely in chip at low power, right? It's a, it, exactly right. So and take, as, take, take as an example, an, an autonomous vehicle. You're, you're right, they're, they're, they're driving around the streets of San Francisco right now, uh, but all of the sensors, and there are, dozens, if not hundreds of sensors are sending all the data either to the trunk uh, or under a seat to a bunch of GPUs, uh, graphics processing units that are burning hundreds of watts. I mean, literally hundreds of watts. And I think about a hundred watt light bulb, put three or four of them in a suitcase and see what happens. Uh, so you've got all of the processing power is consuming energy, but there's power dissipation so it's not just the consumption, but it's the dissipation because nothing is 100% efficient. So you generate heat. Now you have to have cooling. When you're driving an electric vehicle, which most autonomous vehicles are or will be, the last thing you want to do is, is, is waste power. Because that, that draws on the battery. If we can do the analytics at the edge, and as I said, LiDAR could be 90% sparse. Uh, yeah, you, even an RGB camera, you know, whether it's whether you're low resolution or you're talking 4K, you're still going to have 50% sparsity, which means 50% of the data doesn't know, need to go back to the trunk and, and consume power. And that, that I think is one of the big benefits. In, in, I use the automobile application uh, because Andy brought it up, but that's, that is one of the greatest advantages in all of the things that I've talked about so far. So uh, 
I want to bring up the, uh, by the way, so <laughs> uh, the reference uh, at the AI field day about uh, tigers, uh, there was even a joke, if any of you go back and, and watch that, uh, we thought you were going to stop at the hot dog, not hot dog. Remember the San Francisco, <laughs> the yeah. Silicon Valley <laughs> joke, but then you went a step up. It's not just tiger, not the tiger, but also you are, you are sensing the other objects as well. So it was impressive. But uh, I want to double click on that, uh, the, the use case you talked about. Uh, people don't realize how key that is. It's basically disrupting the healthcare field because most times in a healthcare field, things are still done in the old fashioned way, right? But what you're suggesting about having a breathalyzer analyze the molecules and figure out the pre-levels of some disease, imagine how great this would be if you're already ahead of the game and by chance if you release COVID breathalyzer. You know, rather than you know doing the test and waiting for hours, all you have to do is that if you're going to fly in an airplane, you got to go to the security and do the breathalyzer like the same way you do with driving, right? And then if you're clean, you can go. I mean, it's not there yet, but imagine that that's disruption that you can figure something out on the fly, right? It, Talk about it's, it. It's, it's not there yet, but it's getting darn close. Hmm. And you're right. The transportation industry, the, the, the healthcare industry, going to a hospital. Uh, and I had, I had to go oh. to the hospital last week for, for you know, an, an accident that I had. Imagine if they could just give you a breathalyzer and, and check for COVID, H1N1, yeah. uh, even MERS on your way out, uh, which, you know, which is a, a big problem in, uh, with people that stay in the hospital. But it's getting, it's getting very close. But of course, that's theoretical. Um, <laughs> you know, you don't have that right now. I want to make sure that nobody thinks that this is, uh, you know, a, a, an application, existing application. But certainly, this is the sort of thing that you can envision being able to do with a portable, low-powered device. Um, one of the things that occurred to me when you all, again, when you briefed me, was like, how is this possible? Like, how come you guys can do it with, you know, a million, you know, milliwatt? And everybody else is is doing it with you know uh, many watts. I mean, you know, for what it's worth, you know, a conventional um, you know AI processing, you know, a, a learning setup with a bunch of GPUs and stuff. I mean, you're looking at like 500 to 1,000 watts at, at least um, power draw. How come you guys can do it so low power? But there's, there's really two fundamental reasons. And I, I, I have to give a great deal of credit to Peter Vandermaid, our founder. He's the brain in brain chip. He's been, work, he's been working on what we call spiking neural networks or you know, to, to kind of bring it down to a level that many more can understand. We call it event-based. Uh, so again, we, we play on sparsity. We only, we only look at data and only process data when it's important. Uh, the other thing that we've, that we've done in Akita, uh, which really brings down the power a great deal, is in, in virtually all other architectures, you start with some floating point math. So you might start with 32-bit floating point, and then you quantize. You take floating point, you turn it into an integer, you take that integer and you quantize down. And in virtually all cases, they quantize down to eight bits. And that, that, that level of quantization impacts your accuracy. 
it may be the difference between 99% accurate or 97 or 96 or 95, you know, depending on the architecture. We quantize down to one, two, and four bits. So we start by, by playing on sparsity because we're in the event domain. And once we have both sparsity uh, in weights as well as in activations, then we quantize down to one, two, or four bits. And you can see some charts that we present, and maybe, maybe Anil did it at, at the field day. If not, you know, we'd be happy to share it at the next field day. But you can play with you can play with the weights. You can say, okay, I want I want four bits and four bits. And therefore, maybe I'll get another percent of accuracy. I'll take weights at two bits, I'll take activations at four bits. And maybe you lose a half a percent. I could take it all the way down. We could take it all the way down to one bit and one bit, and maybe maybe you're going to lose several percent of accuracy. But all of that is what allows us to do this at extremely low power sparsity and the quantization. And just to translate that for folks listening, I like to kind of think of the metaphor of you know the box of crayons, right? So you know if if you are identifying the colors of the world around you and you only have the eight crayon box then you have to say, well, that's blue and that one's red. If you have the 64 crayon box, maybe that's cyan and that's mauve or something. You know, I mean, you know, the, 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 there's a whole bunch of shades of gray and, or, you know, <laughs> shades of blue, shades of red. Um, and that, to me, that's the difference in what you're talking about. So if, if, I, if, if, if the task is identify red lights and you've got the 64 box, you might have, you know, a bunch of different reds to choose from, but you're going to still be able to identify that light as red, even if you have the eight box of crayons, because you can look at it and say, yep, red, you know, and, and to me, that kind of gets to this whole, you know, maybe sometimes we don't need this kind of this level of precision, maybe we can get away with something incredibly low, like, you know, like you're saying, like two bits or four bits of precision. Right, that's exactly right. So I got a question on um, when we were talking earlier, and even at the AI field day, you guys were talking about uh, creating this neural processing mesh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, generally speaking, neural processing is somewhat on these days reserved to cloud location only. Um, mm -hmm. And whether by choice or by the vendor push or a combination thereof and, and the power requirement and all that. So you suggesting neural processing mesh uh, brings out my mind at least a few differentiators. Uh, just to mention some, the first one would be any nodal point. Uh, first of all, generally the service meshes are created using software mostly uh, mm -hmm. until now, right? Having a hardware or chip-based mesh in itself is a true differentiator. And, and the second thing in my mind, any nodal point of the mesh itself can have the same capabilities of any other node in there. So you create a true mesh of a neural processing capability. I mean, that sounds very powerful, but what are the use cases? What do you think this is applicable? Well, I think there's two things to remember. The, the, the mesh is our neural fabric uh, and it's made up of, it's made up of nodes. Uh, and within each node, there's neural processors. Yep. Um, one of the things, um, and this is uh, to Anil's credit and the hardware side of our team is we distribute uh, our memory throughout the mesh. So we, we, we can take advantage of you, if, if, if you wanna use 
four of the nodes for an audio application. And then you still have 16 other nodes, uh, which is a whole bunch of processing power. You don't have to go into and out of memory. The memory is resident in the node. Uh, so the idea of doing the, the mesh really allowed us to distribute memory throughout the, the neural fabric. And again, that helps reduce power because you're not sucking up bandwidth going into and out of external memory. Uh, so I, I think that's the, 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 power of, the power of the mesh is it allows us to partition the neural fabric so you can do multiple applications on the same device. Again, with, with all the benefits, you could each one of those networks running can, can learn on the fly, take advantage of the extremely low power because we have distributed the memory within the mesh. So obviously the, the open source, the, the whole uh, PyTorch and, and the libraries and the whole nanny arts, it's popularizing the way uh, doing a machine learning model training and AI model training and everything is done in a software. What you're proposing is, you know, there is another way to do that as well. So in the future, how do you see the future evolving? Are you going to be working closely with them together? Or are you going to replace them? Or are you going to arguments, you know, supplement? How, how do you think this is going to work? Well, I, you know, one, one thing we haven't touched on, and I think it's an important attribute as well, is the design flow uh, to move from this, a convolutional neural network that you know, may be established within an organization. The design flow doesn't change. We use, ten, we use TensorFlow, we use Python scripts. Mm. Um, so from the potential customer's standpoint, they don't need to learn a new language. They, okay. run, they run in the exact same flow that they have. Once they get to their quantized level, then we, we align the Akita layers to what they've completed and we do our, our flow in the background. We have an Akita development environment, which is very robust but doesn't require the front end to change at all. Uh, we happen to be in, in, in uh, TensorFlow and Python. You could do it in PyTorch, you know, cafe out there. There's a, a whole bunch of tools that people, people use mm -hmm. and we're somewhat agnostic to that. Uh, the, the, the flow allows them to move through their front end and then we take their quantized levels and we move it into the Akita compatible environment. Well, I think that this, honestly, this conversation could go on a long time because frankly, there's a lot going on here. Um, I hope that we'll see you at the next AI Field Day to dive into some of these topics a little bit deeper. Um, and I know that uh, folks who are listening, if they have questions, um, you know, I do recommend checking out the AI Field Day presentations. Just Google, uh, you know, Brainship AI Field Day and you'll find the presentations on YouTube and, and you can dive into a little bit more about how this works. But in the interest of time, uh, we do have to wrap up the podcast. And since this is season two of Utilizing AI, I'd like to wrap up with a couple of easy questions for you, Lou. And uh, I warned you a little bit, but I didn't tell you what the questions were gonna be. So I'm sure you're wondering what I'm gonna ask. So, um, Let's go with uh, one that's a little bit outside of BrainChip's uh, capabilities now, but well, maybe it's not. So here's a question for you. How long will it take for a natural conversational AI to pass the Turing test and fool an average person in a verbal conversation? It's gonna be a long time. Long time. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a long time. And that, that's, um, that requires probably cloud-like support. 
uh, the, the time frame for that to be in an edge device is going to be quite some time. Okay. How about this one? Um, and maybe you got a little bit more of an idea about this one. When will we see video focused or visually focused ML in the home that operates like the audio based ML of assistants like Siri and Alexa? Very soon. Very soon. Uh, you know, our, our, our capability, it depends on how deep you want to go, but our capability to determine whether there's a person in the room or not, it's, it's at hand now. Um, you know, whether you're using a standard pixel-based camera or you're using a DVS device, which is dynamic vision sensor, that, that, that's at hand now. Now, depending on the marketplace, who decides to deploy at what level because of privacy concerns, you know, there, there's, there's market dynamics that I think need to be worked out. Actually, yeah. if I can, if I may, um, there are a couple of co commercially available solutions. We can have another conversation on that, which could do customer support based on a visual thing. So you could you could talk to somebody, uh, to an AI-enabled, uh, you know, uh, persona, and it'll decide based on your your conversation. Uh, they are not fully mature like the Alexas of the world, but it's it's getting there. All right, uh, Lou, one more question then. Um, are there any jobs that are gonna be completely eliminated by AI in the next five years? Uh, undoubtedly, uh, but that, that, that could be very well offset if not uh, surpassed by the jobs that are being created. I mean, take a company like Brainchip. We've got 40 employees now. I don't know where we'll be. You know, we haven't put a forecast out in the public domain, but we'll certainly have a whole bunch more people in the next year, two, and three. So I think it's a it's a, maybe a redistribution. It's not necessarily a loss, but a redistribution. Well, thank you so much for that. And uh, I really did enjoy this conversation. Again, I think we could have gone on a lot longer, but uh, you know, that's the problem with the podcast format. You know, you've got a clock to, to meet. So uh, Lou, where can people connect with you to follow your thoughts on enterprise AI and other topics? Well, there's, there's several ways. Um, certainly our, our LinkedIn page is very active. We've got a uh, couple of thousand, maybe 3000 followers on LinkedIn. We have a Twitter location. Uh, all of them are located at the bottom of any one of our press releases. Uh, frankly, I, I take emails directly. People can reach out to me directly. It's eldonardo at brainship.com. Uh, we also, for investors, we have an IR location, so it'd be IR at brainship.com. Uh, but there's lo lots of lots of ways to reach us, and uh, you know we have a we have a YouTube channel all, all set up, and you can see actually I think the the, the there's a link to the the field day and. Uh, and Stephen, I'll, I'll tell you right now, we, we will participate in your next field day and we, appre we appreciate the invitation. Excellent, excellent. Andy, how about you? Sure, people can uh, find me on uh, Twitter at Andy Thurai or connect with me on LinkedIn or they can find more details at, uh, from my website at the thefieldcto.com. That's thefieldcto.com. Great. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at S. Foskett, and uh, you can find my writing at gestaltit.com, among other places. 
So thank you very much for listening to the Utilizing AI podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion, please do go to your favorite podcast application. Give us a rating, a subscription, a review. Uh, that really does help our visibility. And please share uh, news about this podcast with your friends. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage from across the enterprise, as well as the fieldcto.com. For show notes and more episodes, go to utilizing-ai.com or find us on Twitter at utilizing underscore AI. Thanks for joining and we'll see you next time.